0: You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well hello and welcome to the family business podcast I'm Russ Hayworth your host and I am absolutely delighted today to be joined by Mitzi Perdue from uh, over in the States and Mitzi is a public speaker and an author and has written a book called how to make your family business last. Um, Firstly Mitzi hello and, and thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, What a pleasure to be with you and our listeners.
0: Um, and I guess the, the, the best thing, I think, to, to introduce yourself is to, to maybe give um, our listeners a, an overview of um, your life within and around family business, if that's okay. Oh, please. And um, if you'd
1: like me just to plunge in and, and then Yeah, go for it. All right. Uh, I wrote the book, How to Make Your Family Business Last, because I'm part of two families that have totally beaten the odds on how to make your family business last. I bet a lot of our listeners know that only 30% of family businesses are going to make it to the next generation. And by the time you get to the fourth generation, it's only 3%. Mm. Well, the Purdue family, which is in the chicken business or the poultry business, we've been in business since 1920. So, you know, we've, we're, there are five generations right now. And the Henderson family, which is my family of origin, The Henderson Estate Company began in 1890, and that was the forerunner of the Sheraton Hotels. My father co-founded the Sheraton Hotels along with his brother and his roommate from college. And that was in the 1930s. Well, since the Henderson Estate Company has been in business since 1890, we are now seventh generation. And I love to see what the culture is of families that last versus the ones that don't. And one of the premises of my book is that every family that exists, and I invite our listeners to think about this for a second, every family that exists has a culture, but is it one that came about by default or by design? And the ones that came about by default rarely teach the children the things that they need to know to help support the family staying in the family business. And I could make a bet right now that people are wondering, well, what are those things that... that, support keeping family business in the family.
0: Absolutely and um, do you have some uh, some insights there as to, to, the, to the commonalities that you've seen?
1: Uh, yes and I wrote almost 60 points that that people can use in helping instill a strong family culture and I'm not expecting that anybody would use all 60 although between the two families that I'm part of we do use them all but I've been told by readers of the book that if you try even one or two, that you're just vastly ahead of the game. Okay. And among the things that, that I see, you asked about commonalities, is children, almost from the youngest age, have to learn how to resolve conflict. And, okay. And one of the biggest things that kids need to learn, and actually everybody needs to know, is you can't always be right. The, the person, I, there, there's a story that's kind of popular in both families, and it's one that I picked up, but I'll eagerly share it with everybody. I have a friend who's a lawyer, and he told me that he just loves nothing better than when one of his clients says, I'm standing on principle. I don't care what this costs. We've got to win this lawsuit. Uh-huh. And the lawyer told me when he hears clients say that, and he gets it all the time, he's in his mind doing cartwheels of pure joy because he says that means I'm going to get probably double or triple or 10 times the fee that I normally would get because saying you're standing on principle is pretty much the same thing as saying, I'm not going to be rational. Uh I'm not going to think, I'm not going to try to understand the other person's point of view. In fact, it means I'm going to be stubborn. So the lawyer told me, When he hears a client say, I'm standing on principle, he thinks, oh, boy, now I can get my wife a new fur coat. (laughs) Or or maybe I can, if if the guy's stubborn enough or if the client is stubborn enough, maybe I'm even going to get a new car out of this. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, one of the things that I advise people, yeah, stand on principle in some things, sure. But in a family argument, don't do it. Mm. Because that is a synonym for being stubborn. So in in both families, we encourage people to instead of standing on principle, which means standing which means being stubborn, we encourage people, we reward people, we we celebrate family members who are good at looking at the other side, Uh at the other person's side. And I I first became deeply aware of this principle of looking at the other person's point of view in a family quarrel. Because in the Henderson family, when I was growing up, and I'm 76 and proud of it, Mm -hmm. uh, that meant that I was growing up in the 1940s and the 1950s. And at that time, my father owned, or the the company owned, it was a family-held company, we owned more than 100 hotels. Uh And we were told, just as children, that it was... It was just deeply immoral ever to let a family quarrel get outside the family. Uh It was perfectly okay to to argue with each other and get whatever the issue is on the table and deal with it. And if that meant yelling and screaming, that was okay, as long as you didn't bring outsiders like, for example, lawyers Uh or the press into the quarrel. Uh, It was was just understood that after you totally aired whatever your grievance was that, and when a decision had been made, that we were to come together and nobody was to hold a grudge. And in a moment, I'll give an example of where that played out, because it wasn't just theoretical, but to continue for a second on the thought of solving problems within the family. We were told that if we didn't solve problems within the family, that it was almost as bad as murder.
2: I mean, wow. I, bet,
1: I, I bet that you were brought up with the idea that you just don't commit murder. I mean,
2: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: <laughs> we don't do that. Yeah. Well, almost with the same force. I mean, I, the word almost is relevant there, but almost with the same force, we were told that if we let a family quarrel escape to the extent that it would become like in the press or it would be lawyers would be involved, uh-huh. that, that would be threatening not only to the family, but it would also be threatening to 20,000 employees. Mm. It would be there at that point, there were 25,000 stockholders because although we were a family owned company or rather a family controlled company, we owned 30% and that Mm. meant 70% of the owners of the company were like widows and orphans. And did we have any right to let a quarrel of ours explode outside of the the family? And the answer was no, Mm. because when, when there's a public quarrel, that always destroys wealth. It means it means that, for example, a competitor might try to pick you off. It means the stock might the stock might go down. They're just you know on every count, it was morally wrong, and we didn't have the right to indulge our egos in a quarrel, um, in a quarrel that would be uh, brought outside the company.
0: Absolutely, well, and I guess that. The, that lesson, although the Sheraton hotel chain was, as you say, a big chain with 20,000 employees and stockholders, that those lessons can still be learned down to um, smaller family businesses who are, are looking to grow, or maybe in the first or second generation where they're looking to grow and become sizable. It's often not the, it's not the financial aspect, it's the family aspect that can impact on that as well.
1: Yes. In fact, I think this counts for a mom and pop organization as much as it would count for, I don't know, the Ford Motor Company. In in every case, the amount of destruction that happens when you let a family quarrel escape is is just limitless because, you know, it doesn't just harm the employees and the stockholders. It can harm the whole tax base Mm -hmm. of the community. So in other words, don't do it. And so I was brought up with the idea, our catchphrase for the whole thing was, we don't wash our dirty linen in public.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And I, I promised, I don't know, a couple of minutes ago, I promised that I would tell of an example of where this really came to a head, where uh-huh. there was just white hot boiling feelings. And it was when my father died, there was a question of, do we sell the company or not? Well, the family was pretty much split down the middle and I was in the side that didn't want to sell. Uh-huh. And my reasons, or I'll say our, our reasons, the side of the family that didn't want to sell, was we were thinking, you know, this is this is our family's legacy. This is our identity. This is who we are. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, nobody will ever care as much about the employees as we do. Nobody else will love the employees the way we do. Nobody's else going to care, uh, you know. And it, it's like disrespecting our father's legacy. All right, that mm-hmm. was one side. The other side which, by the way, was the, the side that prevailed, was taking some real hard economic uh, assessment of what, at that period, and we're talking the late 1960s, at that point, most hotel chains were having close associations with other other organizations, such as travel travel companies or, like, car companies or whatever, uh-huh. and that an infusion of cash and also the... Uh, the strength that comes when you have several allied industries working together, that it was just, you know, extremely economically valuable for everybody mm-hmm. to do it that way, including the employees and the stockholders. Okay. Well, all right, the, the side that I wasn't on won out. But as far as I know, nobody ever went to the press about this and, and told about the the argument within the family. Nobody yeah. ever had a lawyer represent them, even though we have the strongest feelings that you can possibly have. Some of the strongest feelings that you ever have have to do with your identity.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And this was our identity. And yet, because of this training that we'd had from childhood, that you, you don't, we don't wash our dirty linen in public and that uh, anything that would threaten like the stockholders or the employees or the community base was morally wrong, we did keep to to our very strongly held values of we don't wash our dirty linen in public. Uh-huh. And I tell that story because, uh, you know, it's kind of easy for me to say, don't take a quarrel outside of the family. But I'm living proof that you can keep quarrels inside the family. But a lot of companies don't. And I told you, or I'm not sure I told you, but I, I mentioned and as expect that a lot of our listeners already know that only 30% of families make it to the, to the next generation. Yeah. Well, the overwhelming majority of why they don't make it to the next generation is family quarrels. Uh-huh. So, yeah, you know, one of the first things that I would recommend to any family, and I wrote, you know, there, there are probably five chapters in my book on this subject, is uh-huh. ways of avoiding family conflict. And by the way, there doesn't exist a family that doesn't have a conflict and they can be just as serious and life threatening as you can imagine. Yeah. But the issue is how do you handle them? Mm. And there's I have a lot of resources for people short of going to a lawyer.
0: Okay, And and, uh, I'm guessing another side of that is. the the family all felt safe enough in in whatever environment that you were having the the disagreements and and the quarrels in, you felt safe enough to be able to air your views and and to have that difference of opinion.
1: Well, first, that's true. But second, let me jump to the Purdue family, because the Purdue family, which has been going on 97 years, like any family that exists, of course, there are conflicts. There's, There's no such thing as a family without conflict, but... In the Henderson family, we say don't wash your dirty linen in public. Uh-huh. In the Purdue family, we have what's called the covenant, which again is it's perfectly legitimate to express very, very, very strongly held views, passionate views, but we don't go public with them, uh-huh. uh, and and we close ranks when a decision's been made. And by the way, the reward the rewards in the Hendersons for for not going at each other's throats and going public on the issue of whether to sell Sheraton or not, uh-huh. that meant that we were able to sell the company. Um, that also meant that, you know, a tremendous amount of funds came our way yeah. and we've kept together as a family and we we invest together. And you know, that was, that was more than 50 years ago. We still are a loving, strong, supportive family. And when one family member gets in trouble, there are, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are going to support that family member who's in trouble and, and help get him or her through. Uh-huh. So I, to, to me, the rewards of knowing how to handle th- family conflict are extraordinary. Mm-hmm. The, you know, it, ta- it takes some effort, but good Lord, the, the rewards are, are just so wonderful.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> On the other hand, the pain when a, family, when a family's falling apart, I, I have a quick experience that I'd love to share. Mm, please, I thought you'd say yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, by now I figure we're friends, so I, yeah, I think they would be saying yes. Um, <laughs> now, this is an experience. I, I had several reasons for writing the book, or several experiences that impelled me to write "How to Make Your Family Business Last." But one of them comes from an experience I had when I lived in New York, which I did for five years, mm-hmm. and. While I lived in New York, it was a wonderful thing. I love New York. But while I was there, I had the following experience: um, I, I got to join a group of sixteen women who called ourselves the Famous Last Names Club. Okay. And Famous Last Names Club, they were one of the conditions of joining it is that you you can't reveal who the other members are. But they're members of families from family businesses, which pretty much every every name you would recognize. I mean, Purdue is probably the least recognized of of the names. Right, okay. So so these were heavy-duty, well-known names. And and I loved it, and I loved the fellow members. But I can remember one lunch. There were 16 people at this lunch. We were at a a boardroom of a major bank, and it was very lush and elegant with a mahogany table, Mm -hmm. and it was nice stuff. But as the topic for that day was, how well do you get along with your siblings? Okay. And, and we went around the table and telling about what our relationship with our siblings were. And the first person told me, or didn't tell me, she told everybody, that she had a terrible relationship with her two brothers and that they were doing everything that they could just to squeeze her out of the whole family business. And one of the ways they do this is they wouldn't tell her when the meetings were. And she said, she said that the pain of having her own uh, own two brothers do this to her was, was permeating every hour of every day.
0: Yeah. I can imagine.
1: Well, then we went to the next one. The next one uh, had a brother who was, uh, he, he had a chronic and debilitating marijuana habit. Now, marijuana does not have to be debilitating, uh-huh. but on the other hand, frequently it is, because if, you, if you're dependent on marijuana, I mean, even though he wasn't doing harder stuff, if you're dependent on marijuana, it meant that in this business that these two owned or were the major controllers of it, that for him everything was just sort of mellow and uh-huh. it, it just totally removed to his competitive edge and he just sort of floated through uh, in a state... I hope I'm describing this accurately. <laughs> yeah, pretty,
0: I can imagine, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's, I if think... We're
0: going it's, bankrupt. Don't worry about I mean, it. It's <laughs> fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm describing it as best I can from... This is you know, this is secondhand from what she was telling. Uh-huh. But, but, but the issue was that her brother wasn't pulling his weight in in any way, shape, or form. It was mm. all falling, in, falling on her. And it was just making her utterly and unendingly miserable. And she had no idea what to do about it. And wow. uh, P.S., by the way, I have a lot in my book about substance abuse and what to uh-huh. do it. Well, the third person, she was in a lawsuit <coughs> with her four siblings. And the lawsuit had gotten so extreme that there were four different law firms that were being fed from the quarrels that the four of them had.
0: Yeah, and, and you can imagine the winner there, can't you? It's going, oh, going I, to be I, those lawyers. That they're yeah, getting I mean, their, when
1: met, yeah, when I mentioned a, a lawyer friend of mine who does cartwheels with somebody stands Yeah. Up, oh, well, this was a case of four people standing on principle. They were sure they were right. Each of them was sure they were right. And they were just going through... Oh, their assets just—they—they uh, they were burning through them, and this was a cause of unending misery for her. Mm, yeah. Well, as we went around the table, pretty much everybody had, you know, one version or another of how a low-functioning family was causing them day in and day out misery. Well, when it came to me, I was—I was kind of embarrassed at this point because. You know, Who wants to be goody two shoes? You're going to
0: make something up.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was almost to that point because, you know, if everybody else is so miserable, you know, am I here to rain on their parade? It was, yeah. uh, as I said, it was, oh, uh, it was, it was, I don't know, disconcerting for me because. I regard my relationship both with my married in family and with my family of origin as the happiest part of my life. Mm. I mean, I love seeing my relatives. I love how we cooperate. I love how we support each other. And so here I am stuck with this situation of which, uh, 15 other people, actually there was one other person who didn't have problems, but I was, there were 14 others who, you know, were, I mean, I, I don't want to make light of it. Mm. Uh, I, I, I hope I'm a sympathetic person, yep. but here, you know, they all are having horrible problems that, yeah. you know, here, here, Miss Goody Two Shoes is about to admit that she's having a wonderful time. Well, so I didn't, uh, right. what I, what I told them was mumble, mumble, mumble. Uh, my experience was different and uh-huh. nobody followed up on it. And I didn't, <laughs> fortunately I was spared raining in everybody else's parade. Uh, But it did leave me with an awareness that when families are functioning well, they're they're the greatest source of happiness that I can think of. Uh, But when your intimate relationships are going badly, especially if it's in a business context, it's, I mean, I suppose there are things that are more painful, but that's way up there. So what can you do to have high-functioning families?
0: That was going to be my question, because presumably, (laughs) uh, uh, had they um, sort of pushed on it and said, well, okay, what's different um, uh, uh, in your family, within the Henderson family? Could you put your finger on that? Was there something you could say, well, this is what we've done that that others can learn
1: from? Yes, in a word. Uh, Because of that experience, and that experience was probably, I'm losing track of time, but probably 10 years ago. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, maybe it was seven or eight years ago, but it was a while ago. That that left me on a quest to find out the answer to your question. Why were my two families so supportive and loving and you know, generating joy? And why, why was this not the case with the others? And I did come up with an answer after, you know, endless... I'm a writer by trade, by the way, and I'm also a public speaker. Well, that meant that just by, I don't know, personality, and who I am, I began doing research on it. And I bet I've read several hundred books on the subject of what it takes to be a high-functioning family business, Mm -hmm. or what it takes to be a high-functioning family. And when when I put that knowledge together, including interviewing dozens and dozens and dozens of people, family practitioners, lawyers, psychiatrists, psychologists, When I put all of this together, I do come to a conclusion. And the conclusion can be expressed in two words, maybe even one. Let's go with one. Uh Culture. Okay. But if we can expand it to two words, I'm going to say family culture. Because the families that teach their kids from the youngest ages, a whole bunch of things I mentioned to start with, things like uh, that you can't always be right. Mm-hmm. The, the, the people that I mentioned in the famous Last Names Club, those, those families didn't teach their kids that you can't always be right. And so they were willing to take the quarrels just to the ultimate mm-hmm. rather than, than do what it takes to solve it. And, you know, if you can't solve it within the family, there, there are other ways. there There's mediation. There's collaborative law, which is not adversarial, where, uh-huh. where the lawyers don't get paid unless you come to a resolution. Uh-huh. There are so many, there, there's so many specialties where, where you can go for help for putting the pieces back together again. It's it's, I I think it's essential, and yeah, I don't think enough people know that the tools are out there. Yeah, so I when agree. I was writing How to Make Your Family Business Last, at the end of every chapter. I have three or four resources you can go to. If, you know, ideally the advice I give will get you through. But uh-huh. if not, I share resources, whether they're, they're internet resources or just the kinds of, of people who are out there who will help you solve your problems. Um, uh-huh. But that, in, in a way, that's just the beginning of how I think that, that culture ought to be shaped rather than left to accident. I, I agree. The I, one of the things that happened with Frank Purdue that I'm just so proud of, I remember this was probably a quarter of a century ago, but we were driving back from visiting one of his one of his daughters. and it was five hours away. Uh-huh. And as we were driving back, and Frank was in his 60s at this point, Frank began kind of looking back on his life and his his children and grandchildren and soon-to-be great-grandchildren. And he was sort of musing over the fact that his age, he knew a lot about what it takes to be happy. Uh He was wishing, if there only there was some way to communicate this to his children and grandchildren and the people who came after him. Well, I suggested that he do what, what my father did, which is my father used to bring his children together after Sunday services, and we had what we called family hour. Mm -hmm. Family hour, and he must have put a lot of effort into this. He would tell us things about just knowledge that he wished we had, such as, for example, how the stock market works, what a bond Uh is, uh, or stories about his parents or his grandparents or his great-grandparents, or stories about how... One of our, I guess it's my great grandfather, he made and lost three fortunes. But the point of the story that father was telling us was, he made and lost three fortunes, but each time when he you know just sunk into bankruptcy, he, he made his way back up again, mm-hmm. and he paid off all his creditors in each case. And so, wow. yeah, you know, we're left with a role model of, yeah, you can just fall apart. You can even endure bankruptcy, but that's not the end, uh-huh. because uh, winners aren't afraid of losing. Winners uh, pick themselves back up again and and keep on and persistence. So, in the course of of, of all these stories, we have an identity of who we are, and that yeah, you know, that we are resilient people who bounce back. Yeah, or it tell us things like. Uh, if, if he was enthusiastic about astronomy, he'd give us astronomy lectures. Uh, wow. Okay, so here I am telling Frank about how how my father went about communicating with his children. And we actually all tell our children and grandchildren these stories. Uh-huh. Uh, I was telling him you know, how my father did it. But Frank answered, and remember, we're driving in a car, you know, just kind of, thinking about the world, Uh Um, Frank answered when I told him about what my father did. He said that that avenue wasn't open to him because, first of all, Frank Perdue, you might not guess this, but he was kind of a shy man. Uh It it wouldn't be easy for him. It would be awkward for him just to stand up in front of his children and lecture at them. But the other thing was they were geographically dispersed at this point. They... Uh He had family. I think one family actually pretty much from California to Maine. And how do you how do you share stories or values if if they're geographically dispersed? Okay. Well, that turned out to be a wonderful question for me because it influenced the rest of my life. Uh-huh. It influenced the book I wrote. It the answer that we came up with was: What if I would ask him questions and then put his answers? into a newsletter, which I'd mailed to all his, his children and grandchildren. Uh-huh. He loved that idea. Yeah, it's and, great. And now I know that this would not be easy for everybody else to copy, so I've actually written a workbook that accompanies How to Make Your Family Business Last. Uh-huh. In fact, I've written two workbooks. The, uh, the first one is How to Connect with Your Family. Uh-huh. and This is sample newsletters. But in the sample newsletters, I I copy the kinds of questions that I ask Frank, and I even give his answers. But I leave room for people almost like a template. So okay. if they wanted to have family newsletters that fit their family, I leave blanks where where they can plug in their information. So you don't have to be a professional writer; you can use me mm-hmm. to help you write it. Because I I really did write. Uh, the book "How to Connect with Your Family," I wrote that for the sole purpose of helping people who aren't writers create newsletters, and these are available on Amazon, by the way.
0: Okay, and uh, we'll put some links in the in the show notes to, to the books that you've uh, you've mentioned. So, um, so if our audience want to pick up a copy, they can uh, they can head over to either your site or or to Amazon to pick those up.
1: Perfect, and they're on Kindle. And if you don't remember the name of the book, that's fine. Just Look for Mitzi Purdue on Amazon, uh-huh. and Purdue, by the way, uh, is not spelled like the university. Purdue is chickens, and that's P-E-R-D-U-E. Uh-huh. But uh, but back to my story about the the family newsletters. It started out with me asking Frank questions of how he felt about things like, well, a basic one was an economic one, where he felt that it's okay to spend money that's the interest on, on your inheritance, but don't blow through the principle.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And he felt that was a really important lesson and he wanted his kids to know it. Other things in economics, which you know, he's telling me and I'm writing down as fast as I can, uh, he was telling about the importance of being frugal.
2: Uh-huh.
1: But, and you know, I was able to write as kind of a PS in the newsletter that Frank, almost to the end of his days, almost blew economy. And we were when we were when we were in major cities throughout the world, he loved using the subways. Okay. So we, whether we in we were in Tokyo or Beijing or Moscow, we used the subways. And it was a great experience every time. Yeah. But but that was part of his being frugal. Well, I began interviewing Frank about things that were important to him. And there there were huge yeah, important topics like how he felt about pre uh-huh. how he felt about honesty, how he felt about how important family is. And so I began writing these newsletters, and the feedback I got was just extraordinary. They, it, it was so strong that I've been writing them ever since. I'm, I'm told by family members that when the newsletters, and remember this was 25 years ago before the internet, so they were uh-huh. on the mail, each family member would get their own newsletter, and it would be addressed to him or her, so like Dear Jan or or Dear Bev or Dear Jim or whoever. Uh, Well, the feedback I got was that when one of these would come, every member of the the family that was receiving them would drop everything and just read the newsletters because they really wanted to know where they came from and and what the patriarch's values and thoughts Mm -hmm. were. So it was it was very encouraging for me and then as initially they came out six times a year today they're 12 times a year and that's again because they're popular and you know i it's pleasant for me and it's it's enjoyable for them so it's you know it's a wonderful experience because I do think that people we are the stories we tell ourselves And we are the identity that we get from the stories we tell ourselves. And I think people crave meaning and purpose. Yeah, get that from knowing where you are and where you came from.
0: Completely. And I think it's very easy, uh, particularly in today's society, where when you know the world is at your fingertips, you've got smartphones where you can get lost and and go off, and you know, uh, it's very easy to, to forget the family values and for those to be um, not given that potentially the, the priority that they um, were um, within your family businesses
1: well that brings me to one of the biggest points of, of advice that that I give in both the two workbooks because I also have a workbook on family newsletters for children mm-hmm. but for the overall book how to make your family business last uh the biggest piece of advice I have, and this is fairly new research, it comes out of Emory University in Atlanta. And it comes from a woman that I met because I was interviewing her to find out more about what makes a family high-functioning. Uh-huh. And she become a good friend. Robin Fivish, Professor Robin Fivish, runs the Family Narratives Laboratory. And here's the information that I just think should be more widely known because it's it's a magic key for making your family more high functioning the magic key is and what she's discovered is the more that family members know their family stories the higher functioning the family is okay and and i'd like to explain what high functioning means yeah i mean i i I think all of us sort of have an intuitive feeling of what it is but let me be more specific
2: Uh
1: and and i'm taking this from from the academic studies of the Family Narrative Laboratory. Being high-functioning means well, it means a host of things, but among them, the kids who know their family stories, they, they do better in school. They get higher grades. They, they do better physically. They do better emotionally. They stay in schools longer. They're better at forming friendships. They don't get in trouble in the, with the law. They're far less likely to be involved in substance abuse. Wow. Um, They're just on, on a dozen different dimensions. They are going to do better. So how do you go about having your family know your family's stories? Yeah. Well, for her, there's a perfect correlation between the more you know your family's stories and the higher functioning your family is. And she what what Robin does and her and her colleagues and her students they go out and actually tape recordings of how families interact mm-hmm. and i think one of the secrets and this is actually reinforced by by other by other academicians but we know that the more time you spend together the more you're going to learn the family stories so it's almost it's almost as if the more time you spend together, the more you know your family stories, and the more you know your family stories, the more you have a strong identity. The kind that uh, I'm. I'm just going to pick an example. But supposing, supposing you've got a kid who's in school, and maybe he or she is kind of depressed. Maybe a romance has gone wrong, or just something's making them unhappy. Mm-hmm. And one of their little friends comes up to them and says, hey, I've got this nice thing that if you take it, it's going to make you feel real good. And it's going to take the edge off your disappointment. Well, that happens to an awful lot of kids. Uh But if they come from a high-functioning family, to turn this off. Uh, if they come from a high functioning family, the good news is they're going to have absorbed the lesson that our family doesn't do drugs or drugs are for losers Uh or people who don't like themselves do drugs. And they're going to have a firm enough sense of themselves and of their responsibility and a deep desire not to disappoint their family, that they're going to have, they're going to have, the equipment, the strength, the skills to be able to say uh, no, not mm. me.
0: And they have that sense of belonging to something, don't they? It, it's yeah. Rather than feeling alone and, and lost and, uh, okay, that substance may then h- help me overcome that, it's, I, I may feel down, I may, may feel depressed, but, but actually I've got a family behind me that, that stands for something and that I can uh, fall back on.
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly. And by the way, I don't want to say that this is going to solve everybody's problems. Yeah, obviously.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: But but here's what I can say. You can improve your odds.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. And, and that it, it reminds me of um a story. I, I've seen some of the excerpts from your um public speaking. Um and uh, your father used to make um, the employees at Sheraton um, when they are first starting out and throughout the business feel extremely valued and feel part of the family business. Uh, can you explain the story behind how that happened? Because I, I think it it helps to put into context that although they may be family values and family culture, it, it It would be all all very easy to say, well, we have a family culture that stands for this, and then it go no further. But I think in in the examples that you use with uh, Sheraton Hotels and then um, with um, Purdue Farms, that that culture um, disseminates uh, and is passed on to everybody within that business.
1: Actually, I'm I'm a deep believer that there's a huge overlap between the family's culture and the family business culture. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned my father and when he'd take over a hotel. Father started in the 1930s at the time when, now this was during the Great Depression. And during that time, hotels were going bankrupt right and left. Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of hotels that survived was not large. Well, father, at this point in his life, he was, he was a veteran of World War I, and he and his roommate from college and his, and his brother, between the three of them, they had $1,000 in war bonds. Mm-hmm. They invested that in a hotel. It was, I believe it was in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. With this hotel, um, he was able to make it a success enough so that he could buy more hotels and with the, with the money that he made from that, he was able to buy still more hotels. But I, as a child, I was always asking him, what was the, the secret sauce, which was what was the magic key mm-hmm. that where you could make a single hotel do so well that you could buy two more and from those you could buy four? How, how did you do this? And he had many answers to that and you know, I share a lot of them in How to Make Your Family Business last. But in this particular case, he told me that at every level with the Sheraton hotels, it was the people who made the hotels a success. Mm-hmm. So I said, "Well, how do you how do you get the people to to make it a success?" When you know, surely every of every one of the hotels that was going bankrupt would have liked to have the people make it a success. And he said, "It's a principle of human nature." that people have a compulsion to live either up to or down to your expectations. And he said, in, in fact, you know, I wish I could repeat that 20 times because I think it's so true. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: He, okay, I'm not going to repeat it 20 times, but I'll repeat it once. Yeah. People have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations of them. So what he would do when he'd take over a new hotel, he would know that pretty much... All the employees of the hotel were probably a very demoralized group because, you know, if the hotel had gone bankrupt, they're probably pretty sure that they're going to lose their jobs and that there will be some house cleaning going on and that, um, you know, that maybe father would have his, his own group of people that he'd like to move in and take their jobs. But that's not what he did. What he did was it assembled all the people who worked in the hotel. And if it was a large hotel, it might be 800 people. Uh-huh. But he'd bring them together in the hotel ballroom and he'd stand up in front of them and almost his first words would be, I want you to know that every one of you is going to keep your job. Well, of course, there would be a gasp of delight from everybody. Yeah. And, but he'd go on and he'd say that he knew that nobody else in the world knew that hotel better than they did and that they were the ones who were going to make it a success, that in a couple of years it would be the most popular hotel in the city.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And he said that his job was to give them the tools and the resources for them to make it the best hotel that they possibly could be, and that he would be leading the, cheer, the, the, cheer, he would be the cheerleader.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, imagine what that must mean to them. <clears throat> oh, and he'd it, it, it conclude his talk with saying, I believe in you. I believe you can do this. Mm. Then, you know, think what this must mean to, to, to people who are demoralized yeah, and discouraged. It's, it's That's huge. Say, I believe in you. But,
0: they're imagining and, the worst, aren't they? they? They're going in there thinking, okay, this is it. Times are tough. I mean, as you say, it was during the, the Great Depression, so lots of people were were losing their jobs. And to have it sort of turned around firstly shows um, a huge amount of faith and trust that your father placed Um, in them Um, but
1: But the trust was it turned out to be justified but he he did more than it was more than just words because when you're taking over a hotel in case you ever need to
2: Uh
1: (laughs) uh, you have to spend a lot of money in refurbishing it especially if it's gone bankrupt because probably everything's just gone to seed Uh the first money that had ever spent in refurbishing a hotel would be in areas where the guests would never see it it would be in areas where, for example, I don't know, the employee dining room, the showers, okay. the lockers. And we we had a world famous decorator that we hired and Mary Kennedy's job was to refurbish and upgrade the employee areas because father felt that to show that he really believed in them, that this was a wonderful way of communicating to them their importance by putting the first money into the parts that would benefit them and what was the end result of all of this the end result was sheraton had a fabulous record of having employees if he started with my father you probably spent your entire life with him mm-hmm. they loved him i mean i could visit hotels and have people sort of take me aside and tell me how wonderful father was or wow. some little thing that he had done for them he, he was you know he was just he was a shy man but he was a people man mm-hmm. Which, incidentally, was remarkably like Frank Perdue. I, yeah. Because Frank was, was just very, very much a people person, even though, like my father, he was shy. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, and, and I guess that, that reinforces that sense of belonging from your perspective, that the, the, the culture that your father wanted to instill within the business was extremely effective, was something to be very proud of, and something that you would want to belong to.
1: Well, back at that time, I have have a degree in management. Uh, It's a a a graduate degree in public administration, a master's. Uh And, you know, in retrospect, I realized that he was doing something that was just spectacularly ahead of his time. Uh Because we're talking 1930s. In 1930s, kind of the approach to management was a harsher one where you'd use hard tactics of the sort of you stand up in front of all the employees and say, oh, you better shape up or you're fired. Mm-hmm. But his was and you know that that might get people to do what he wanted, but they do it with resentment. Mm-hmm. They do it with you know, not with a not not with a feeling of I'm gonna give it my all. On the other hand, when somebody stands up and says, I believe in you, I know that you can do this and I'm going to give you the resources to do it. and I believe in you. The people who hear that message, they try to, they go the extra mile, they're engaged, they care. In fact, I think it's fair to say that there was a lot of love. And father somehow realized this before ahead of his time. In mm-hmm. fact, I think even today, that a lot of managers don't realize that the softer technique of "I believe in you" gets you a lot farther than shape up or you're fired."
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a, um, it's almost a, an easy approach to say, um, "Do this," or, or "You're out the door," rather than to actually um, put the effort and trust into somebody that that they can do what the uh, what you want them to do.
1: Well, I can make a guess on uh, why um, um, Father kept doing it. I mean, I think he he was a good man, but he's also a smart man, and he yeah. observed that it worked. Uh,
0: and then similarly, w- within um, the, the Purdue Farms business, uh, and uh, it, it may be worth pointing out the businesses are entirely separate, aren't they? It wasn't something that was um, – you, you grew up around both of those um, businesses. You met Frank I- after –
1: the hotel business was completely separate from the uh from the chicken business, except for one part uh, when my fa- when when my When my siblings and I were younger, my father had a deep belief that having a farm background was just very very good for kind of for moral character. He uh-huh. thought it was important for his kids to know how to shovel out a barn right. which yeah you know, i've done i 've shoveled out a great many stalls in my life. Um, <laughs> And, and I, you know, I bless him for that because I, I, I just have to agree that that there, there's it does something good for you to to have to take care of animals. Uh-huh. Well, uh, during during World War II, we lived in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Um, it it wasn't a great big commercial farm, but nevertheless, we did have chickens and cows and horses. And my first chore as a child was. We, we had hen houses where, I gonna guess maybe a hundred hens, but these were laying chickens. Uh-huh. But then, you know, Sunday afternoon or Sunday dinner would be chicken. Uh-huh. But, but my job, when, when I was just really, really young, was to reach under the breast of a chicken and feel to get the eggs and, and bring them in. Uh-huh. So, although there was no overlap between the hotel industry and, and my husband's industry... I did have a little bit of a background in chickens and, and we used to joke that he, his first chore as a child and my first chore as a child was the same. collecting uh-huh. eggs. <laughs> On the Fantastic. other hand, he was doing, he was doing it for thousands and thousands and I was doing it for just a few, but oh well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but the foundation was there.
1: The foundation was there.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and um, to, to give, again, a sense of, of scale. So, so over here in the UK, um, the, the, um, there may not be a huge awareness of the scale of um, Purdue Farms as, as a business, um, but, but am I right in thinking it it's pretty large? It, it, we're not talking... Well,
1: I'll tell you. I, I can tell you specifically how large. We have 22,000 associates. Uh-huh. And associates is Purdue speak for employees, but we. Uh, if you work for Purdue, you're referred to as a. Actually, if you work with Purdue, you're referred yeah. to as, uh, as an associate. Uh-huh. They're twenty two thousand. And what I'm really proud of is we sell in approaching a hundred different countries.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: which, which I love. I, I yeah. just love the internationalness of it.
0: It's fantastic, and and the the reason I wanted to to. Talk about the scale is that you know, we're often told that it, it's difficult to instill a culture as businesses grow larger, because it, it gets diluted. But but here we are with two examples of Sheraton Hotel with twenty twenty five thousand uh, employees, uh, Purdue chickens. Uh, sorry, Purdue Farms uh, it has got twenty two thousand um, associates. And both have successfully managed to instill this culture, where there is a sense of belonging, and um, we may get to speak about it. But but understand, um, you had every associate in Purdue around for dinner. Is that right?
1: <laughs> uh, we we tried, uh, uh-huh. and, and here's what happened. Oh, uh, and I actually think we tried fairly successfully to have many. We. Uh, it, it, we weren't able to have every single one in yeah. the time that, that Frank a, was allotted on this earth. But,
0: it's but a we, big table, isn't it, we, if you we, have yeah. it all around?
1: <laughs> well, well, here's how it worked. Since I grew up in the hospitality industry, um, you know, if, if, if your only tools to a hammer, everything's a nail.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I really grew up with the idea that, that, that hospitality is just one of the best things in the world. Uh-huh. And so when Frank and I first married, and we'd just come back from our honeymoon, Italy, by the way,
2: uh-huh.
1: we had just come back, and we were walking on a local beach, and it was a late August day, and there weren't many people around, and we we're walking along, you know, with both of us carrying our sandals in our hands, and suddenly, I look up at Frank, and I tell him, Frank, I think that we ought to entertain every single person who works for
0: Purdue.
1: <laughs> this, this took him aback.
0: I can uh, imagine. <laughs>
1: Look what did I marry? (laughs) He said, no, that would would be impossible. And I think we employed 16,000 at that time. Uh So if if I'm right on the number, his answer was, no, there's 16,000 people. We can't possibly do that. And I pretended that I didn't understand the word no. And so I said, oh, I think we ought to have them 100 at a time. And he said, no, no, that's way too many. And again, I pretended that I didn't understand the music. <laughs> And I said, oh, I think we should start with the secretaries because they can spread the word to everybody that our parties are fun and not scary. And you know, again, no. And I said, I think, you know, it's August now. Let's start by the end of September. No, no, no. That's <laughs> way too soon. And... Uh, so we, it went round and around with him saying no, and and my you know getting ever more specific of what we were going to do. <laughs> but but as we talked about it, I began noticing that uh, his no, as if I'd come from another planet or maybe another huh. galaxy. It began to you know he sort of got interested in the idea, you know, as in like, well, tell me more how you do this or how would you handle that. Mm-hmm. Finally he said, you know, maybe there's something to it. And finally he said, I like it. And I realized why I had made that sale because Frank Perdue, his entire, certainly the entire time I knew him and probably for his whole life, he was always looking for ways of communicating to the people who worked with him that they were important. Mm -hmm. And this in the end turned out to be a fabulous way because Frank was aware of a quote from an American psycho- psychologist from hundred years ago, uh, James, William James. William James said that the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And, okay. and this would be just a wonderful way of his showing to the people who worked with him that they were appreciated. And so in late September, We did have a party with a hundred thousand, sorry, with a (laughs) hundred secretaries, uh, today known as administrative assistants. Uh Uh, And and we started a pattern which pretty much three weeks out of every month, we would have groups a hundred at a time come over for dinner, and it would be a buffet dinner. And we, we invited everybody, whether it was truckers or veterinarians or... I don't know. It people. Uh-huh. We 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 had everybody, but would have them in groups of a hundred, where people would know each other. Yes. With the idea that you're going to be a lot more comfortable if you're with a hundred other accountants uh-huh. and <laughs> strangers, because you know both of us were aware that coming to the big boss's house might make you feel uncomfortable. Mm. Well, at these parties, there would always be buffet. And Frank, and it would be catered by by the local chicken plant. So guess what food we served? Uh (laughs) Uh, But Frank would stand behind the buffet line serving his employees. And, you know, I'm standing aside watching this scene and thinking, how many other heads of Fortune 500-sized companies would actually wait on their employees? Yeah. It It was, for me, a very moving experience because it was servant leadership. Yeah. And then at the end of the evening, he'd stand up and he'd tell his hundred or so guests, it could be up to 140, by the way, but he'd tell his guests what was going on in the company. You know, what were the, what were the challenges, what was going really right, what we needed to work on, what we worried about, um, just, you know, letting them in on the challenges and opportunities and successes of what was going on right mm-hmm. now. And so they're hearing it, you know, from, from the big boss. And then at the end of every evening, he would stand up in front of his employees, or he would think of them as his associates, and tell them, I know that the company wouldn't be what it is today without each of you. And what must that mean to an employee to be told how important he is? Frank is signaling that they're important because he's invited them, he's waiting on them, he's sharing information with them, and then he's telling them. And I, I'm i just so happy when, when I think of those times. And we didn't get to all 22,000, but we, you know, 100 a week yeah. for years and years and years. We, we really continued this uh, until, you know, he was in his mid-50s, sorry, mm. mid-80s and about to go to his great reward. Yeah, He, he loved it. I loved it. I think they loved it. <laughs> well, for that matter, for that matter, I know they loved it because... Not only would they tell me it, that they loved it, but something incredibly moving to me you know, that I'll treasure to the end of my days is I've been to a lot of funerals of associates because, again, if, if we're treating mem- people who work for the company as family members, uh-huh. we, of course, attend weddings if invited, and we'd attend funerals. Uh-huh. And I can't count the number of, of both that Frank and I attended. But after Frank passed, which was 12 years ago, I still went to funerals and I'd have the next of kin come up to me and tell me that one of the most meaningful moments in the deceased's life was being invited to Frank's home for dinner. Wow. So, you know, the, the satisfaction and happiness that gives me to know that I could be part of participating in something really meaningful to somebody's life. Absolutely. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> and I guess that the, the thing that, that can be learned from that as well is that it's far easier not to do that because it's not something that, that is um, compulsory for a business leader or, or a family business leader to say, right, I'm going to have everybody round, or I'm going to start to um, serve my uh, employees and, and colleagues um, their dinners. It's easier not to do that. But, but again, it's that cultural um kind of values that are being passed on and, and people feel part of something um, far bigger than themselves.
1: Well, I'm thinking of just, actually, this happened yesterday. Uh, Jan Purdue, who is uh, the wife of the current head of, of Purdue Farms, mm-hmm. she and I gave a wonderful party for the administrative assistance. And, you know, what I, what I treasured most about it is you know, at the end of it, it was, it was a couple of hour party. It was a couple of hours. It was a lunch. And, you know, part of the lunch was I gave everybody infinite Christmas or, or holiday infinity scarves. Uh-huh. What Jen did, which I thought was so brilliant, is part of the lunch was everybody got to decorate a holiday decoration. It could be like a plate or, or something that you'd hang on a holiday tree. And then it would be fired later in a kiln
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, so that they that have a souvenir of, of it. At the end of this two hours, in which the administrative assistants got to, you know, just spend time together, which they, they rarely would in the course of a normal day. And and Jen and I could could talk with them and get to know them. Uh, but the end of it, which I just felt was so touching and so meaningful for me. I mean, I'm almost getting teary talking about this. Yeah was everyone came up afterwards and gave us great big bear hugs <laughs> saying how good they felt to be part of the Purdue family and well I, I, it's like dying and going to heaven all this, yeah. this love.
0: And it's a great legacy as you say that, that Frank has left that that, that continues and, and people still continue to feel part of such a, a, a strong family value.
1: Well something that Gosh, I keep mentioning the name of my book too much. I don't, I don't mean to be so commercial, but (laughs) yes, I do. (laughs) But, but how to make your family business last. A lot of it is about leveraging the fact that you are a family business, because to the extent that you can embrace all the people who work with the family, that strengthens the family and that strengthens your, your purpose because isn 't it true that that people go through life looking for meaning and purpose
2: uh-huh.
1: and boy if you 're part of a family, including a business family there's there's so much purpose to it. I mean, I told you that I was almost in tears remembering yesterday and everybody hugged yeah. me boy that's that's gives my life some purpose
0: yeah absolutely absolutely and, and this sounds from From what we've been talking about so far, there's an awful lot of similarities between the way your father um, and uh, Frank ran their businesses.
1: Well, then then let me share a story which has, mm, this will be of no use to anybody, but here goes. (laughs) (laughs) Of of no use other than, oh my goodness, Uh, when Frank and I first got engaged, our church, actually it's our version of, of C of E, the uh-huh. Italian Church has a six weeks prenuptial counseling period.
0: Okay, and,
1: and this is back in 1988, and the minister who married us, he he wanted each of us to he wanted to visit with each of us for an hour to see if you know if this was a, a marriage that he could that he could bless, and uh-huh. you know if, if he gave his go ahead, then would have the six weeks of prenuptial counseling. Well. He took, I was the first one, and he asked me for almost an hour different versions of this question, what was your father like? And so okay. I, I said, well, and here's what I told him, that he was a very shy man, he wasn't terribly expressive, but we knew that he loved us because he showed us in a thousand ways, even if he wasn't somebody who would say, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he wasn't even that big on, on, on embracing and hugging us. Although, I mean, he might now and then, but he wasn't, he wasn't like it is today. Uh-huh. So he, he wasn't effusive. He wasn't terribly expressive. We knew he loved us. We, I felt that he was a very smart man. I thought he was incredibly ethical. I thought that he was a very, very fair man. I thought he was a family man. I thought he was a community man. And I felt that, that he really cared about the people who worked with him. Well, at the end of the hour of being interviewed by Reverend Dresel, he said, you know, isn't this interesting? You have in every way described your future husband. Yeah. Isn't that amazing?
0: Yeah, completely.
1: I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess, well, I don't know what I guess. It just, um, he... Yeah, you know, Frank. Frank was a different person, but uh-huh. but he had a lot of a lot of the characteristics of of my late father.
0: Yeah, and the, those can be seen with the um, the ways in which the, the the two businesses have been successful. In that there is that culture, and, and we've spoken already that they're they're across completely different industries where you wouldn't necessarily say there are huge amounts of, of similarities between uh, operating a successful um, hotel business and a successful poultry business.
1: And yet both men, if, if you ask them, you know, the secret of their success, and they could give you lots of different answers, but I think the first answer both would give you is the one that my father said. It's the people at all levels. Because uh-huh. management is the art of getting things done through other people. Yeah. And both men just excelled at motivating people. I mean, because I told you the story about my father and telling everybody you get to keep your job and I believe in you. Mm -hmm. But there's also the story of Frank, of uh, I know the company wouldn't be what it is without each of you. I mean, both men were communicating to the people who worked with them how important that they were. And, And if William James is right, that the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation both men knew how to deliver it. Yeah. So the principles for both, how about for almost any organization, carry over. Hmm. I mean, getting things done through other people meaning means keeping them engaged, keeping them motivated, keeping them feeling appreciated.
0: Yeah, and show them that they matter, or, or tell them—not not show them necessarily, but but tell them that they matter and that they're important and they're valued.
1: Uh, I'm going to go for both. It's show and tell.
0: Yeah. Why not? Um, and but, so, you, know,
1: so, you know something else that they both had in common? Go on. Uh, they were what I call informivores. And I, I bet... Well, have you heard the word informivore before?
0: No, I haven't, Good, because I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, I said yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, 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 well, I... I could imagine that somebody else would come up with the same idea. I mean, Uh maybe there are 50 million people who thought of the word informivore before. But what I mean by informivore is, you know how there's a carnivore. Mm -hmm. uh, An informivore (laughs) devours information. And both men spent enormous amounts of time finding new ideas. My father used to say, one idea can change your life. And I discovered this when but I'm worried if I'm going on too long.
0: No, not a till, not a till. We carry on.
1: You, you've got time for another story. Well, when when I was, I don't know, probably not yet even in my teens, we were living in Boston, Massachusetts, and my father, to my surprise one weekend, took a Saturday off to drive what must have been maybe a nine-hour trip to a small conference in, in New Hampshire. And yeah, you know, when he got back and I, I knew that it was like a nine hour round trip and that the conference had lasted quite a few hours. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know, why would you give up your weekend for, for a conference like this? And he said, Oh, uh, be, because it was a topic that interested me and I hoped I might learn something. And I said, Oh, well, who else was there? And he described. Now remember, this is a person who has twenty thousand people who work for him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He said, "Let's see. There was the owner of a local grocery store. There was the owner of a local gas station, and there were like ten or so other local businessmen." Mm-hmm. And so I asked him, "You know why? Why wouldn't you go someplace that, where you could hang out with your peers? Why? Why with with people who?" You know, who don't wouldn't have the same kinds of problems that you do.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And he said, because you take good ideas wherever you can find them, and if you get one good idea, it can give you a leg up on your competitors. And this was a topic that I thought was important, not widely addressed. I couldn't find it elsewhere, and I'm really, really glad I went. It's, it's going to be beneficial to me. Fantastic. And I took away from that a lifelong interest in watching how the efforts that people will go to, to get good ideas. And it can be, I don't know, attending conferences, which I highly recommend. Uh-huh. It, can, it can be reading books, internet research. I'd love YouTube. Uh, it can mean, you know, Google searches. It mm-hmm. can mean subscribing to podcasts or to business journals or whatever. Yeah. But both Frank and my father just put extraordinary effort into almost on a daily basis, finding new ideas.
0: Mm, which is fantastic. And it, it's, it's a little bit of the idea behind uh, this podcast is to try and share these stories and share these experiences so there might be something that people can relate to in, in the story that they might be able to then go and apply to, to their business. Um, yeah, it's I, it's the same, I, same theory.
1: Yeah, I always worry a little bit uh, on my stories, which happen to be about two well-known and mega-successful people, are they useful to others? But I think they are
0: because the, 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 those successes weren't by accident. They weren't something where both individuals got lucky or, um, you know, the, there is the the, the the thread that runs through it all is that there is a culture and a strong culture and a culture that isn't kept just to themselves or isn't kept – just within uh, the family it, it's something that is um felt throughout the entire business, and they're significant businesses as you say so the, but uh, I,
1: would, I I'm hoping that that some of the attitudes like like the servant leadership of mm-hmm. inviting you them to your home that, that yeah. kind of thing i mean i i I truly don't expect everybody to use all my ideas mm-hmm. but if if you copy even some of them yeah they they might put you farther ahead of where you
0: want to be absolutely and we've spoken a little bit about um, legacy and, and another um, aspect of that that I'm, I'm keen to, to have a discussion about is the concept of an ethical will
1: oh, that I'm so proud of because uh, an ethical will is it's' Actually, a very ancient practice. It it goes back to biblical times. Uh-huh. But I think, I, I think it's sort of having I don't know a renaissance or you Brits renaissance.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, today, twenty five years ago, pretty much. Well, maybe a little later than that. Maybe twenty years ago, Frank was again pondering the question of there. He knows so much. Know, in his 70s approaching 80s
2: uh-huh.
1: he knew so many things as somebody who observed the human condition of what makes people happy and what makes them miserable mm. and he felt and I agree with him that keeping your self-respect by following your highest ethics helps you at the end of your days when you look back on your life to realize that you've had a better life than if if. If, if you were dishonest, if you weren't trustworthy, if you were a rotten person. And so he and I spent three days, you know, giving it the attention that it deserved, distilling what he thought were the, the 10 things that if you follow them, at least these were his recommendations and you know, he perfectly recognized that anybody else might have, have different recommendations, but for his, for his children, grandchildren, those who came afterwards, his he felt that there were certain things that if you follow them, that at the end of your days, you can be happy with your life. Uh-huh. And and you know, some of the reasons for being happy with your life are that if you follow these, you're more likely to have lasting friendships. You're more likely to have a lasting marriage if that's what you want. You're... Basically, you're more likely to have fulfilling relationships with others and with yourself. Mm-hmm. And the first one of these was be honest, always. Treat other people with respect, no mm-hmm. exceptions. Be someone whom others are justified in trusting. Mm-hmm. If you say you're going to do something, do it. In other words, be reliable and conscientious. Well, there are 10 of these. And they... What, after he had written the, the ethical will, the arrangement was for it to be read at his funeral with each of his grandchildren reading one of them. And it had such an impact that the local business school asked if we could copy it. And that wow. led to several hundred business schools asking if they could copy it. I, so, um, you know, it, it, it's had an impact on, on people beyond just Frank. It's incredible. And, and, but I think it's so right. I mean, what what does make you happy? And I'm, I'm going to make a philosophical suggestion, which is not my own. It comes from Plato. Uh-huh. Plato said that there are three things that men think will make them happy, and they never do. Uh-huh. And these are power, money, and fame. And short-term, they might make you happy. But long-term, they don't, because you can never get enough. It's sort of like a street drug. Uh, You've got money, you want more. Yeah. You've got power, give me more. Mm -hmm. You've got fame, oh, oh, I need more, I need more. Uh, So power, money, and fame don't make people happy long term. So Plato's students asked him, Well, Master, what does make people happy? And Plato answered, truth, beauty, and goodness. Because each time you get truth beauty or goodness it makes you happy but you don't need a bigger and bigger dose you don't need to go rob it from your neighbor or invade uh-huh. a country or something yeah. just every little piece of it can make you happy
0: yeah that's that's a really good um philosophy to to take on i, I really like that
1: you know it's funny that that frank Yeah, you know, frank had a lot of power, money, and fame, but I don't think he centered his life about any of those at all.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I, I told you that we used public transportation. We flew economy class. Mm-hmm. His house was, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it in England. We call it a rancher. It's one story and with a whole lot of houses around us. Okay. So it's, it's not Millionaire's Row. And mm-hmm. he and I were both perfectly happy there. Um, I mean, he just didn't need to flaunt. He didn't need to have an ostentatious lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So although he had money, it tended to go towards charity. And as for fame, I think it embarrassed him. Mm-hmm. And as for money, he said what it really meant to him was a way of keeping score. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think he felt the need to spend it on lavish living. So see, and power, oh my goodness, he had so much. But if, if you met him, you'd find somebody who was very egalitarian and humble. And Mm -hmm. if you, if you were talking with him, I noticed this, our whole, all the years we were together until his passing that he'd talk 10% of the time and listen to you 90% of the time. And he'd give you his total attention as if you're the only person in this world. And he'd make you feel important. He wasn't, he wasn't kind of, I don't know, diminishing you by showing that he was powerful. And uh-huh. I think, my, I, think I, I could say that my father was equally modest. On the other hand, he lived a more lavish lifestyle because I think, you know, he's representing the brand of, being you know, hotel men, so he had to uh-huh. live a, a kind of more luxurious lifestyle. And boy, I didn't mind. It was yeah. fun. <laughs>
0: But, but that the, the, what you're saying about the um, the money power and fame and how easy it would have been um, for for Frank or your father to fall into that trap of i'm I'm wealthier than you therefore I'm more powerful than you and therefore you you will do as I say that, that would n- not ring true with the culture that's been created within those businesses it, it's obvious uh, I mean it's, it's you know I, I didn't know either your father or, or, or um, Frank but but you can just tell from from the stories and, and what you hear about them that, that that culture was a an honest and true culture it wasn't a show that was put on because that was the kind of done thing it was far easier not to do that um, and, and I think had they behind closed doors been sort of power hungry or I want more money I want more money that that would be completely lost within um, the, the the culture side of the business.
1: I think the biggest word that I could use to describe both men is that they were good people. Mm -hmm. And a good person doesn't have to, I don't know, lord it over you, which reminds me of something. Frank and I used to visit the plants. And I think at the time while he was still alive, I think there were about 17. There may be more now, but we used to visit the plants just regularly and something that astonished me, yeah, with with and both astonishment and pride, was the number of people working on the line whose names he knew, mm-hmm. and had introduced me to them. You know, this is this is Maisie. She's been with us for twenty five years. Uh, her son just got into college, and yeah, how he knew all this—that he made the effort to know it all. But then another part that impressed me when when we were going through a plant, it wasn't. the big boss it was more the attitude of we're all a team and we each have a role and i utterly respect your role
0: and again that's something that would be appreciated by the associates within the business that they don't feel intimidated and and it's it's easier to have honest conversations with somebody if you're not feeling intimidated intimidated by them or that you can say the wrong thing and you'll be fired and and things like that (laughs) <laughs> Having that culture ingrained means that that it's it's just more conducive to good business,
1: <laughs> which reminds me of another thing frank Frank had no use for yes men mm-hmm. uh, he that you know, one of his favorite phrases was don't tell me what's good about my product because i can 't do anything about that. Tell me uh-huh. what 's wrong because I yeah. can help correct it I like uh, that and the person who argued with him the most uh, well, have we got time for me to tell about an argument? Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, there's, there's an associate, his name's Jack Tatum, who told about what his first week working for the company was like. And we're talking probably 30 years ago. Well, Jack Tatum said that he was, Jack Tatum was in sales and he was part of a sales meeting where there were six sales associates there was Frank Perdue, and there was this guy named Don Mabe. Well, Frank and Don Mabe were arguing. And Jack Tatum told me that the argument was so fast and furious that he was afraid that the whole company was going to fall apart, and that he had just joined the company the day that the company <laughs> fell apart. Because, you no, know, they, they were yelling at each other. and Finally, at one point, Don Mabe got so mad that he picked off it, off his glasses, threw them hard on the mahogany table. It bounced once and hit Frank square in the chest. <laughs> well, at, at, you know, at this point, oh, and, and while, while that was going on, he was saying, Frank, you're going to bankrupt the company. You should take up hang gliding, which by the way, can be a legal sport.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, so Jack Tatum's thinking, you know, nobody survives an argument like that. A guy who's telling his boss that he should take up a fatal hobby. <laughs> and, then, and then the company was going to go bankrupt.
0: Yeah, it's not the best start, is it?
1: <laughs> well, one wonders. Well, anyway, Frank picked up the glasses, handed the person to his right, who handed it to the person to his right until the glasses finally made their way back to Don May. And Frank wasn't even flustered by it. Uh, And, you know, the the argument raged on for a while and finally the meeting was over. And then Jack Tatum watches with his jaw just gaping as he sees uh, Don Mabe and Frank Perdue walking out the door together, chatting and deciding where they were going to go for dinner that night. And the other side of that story is Don Mabe and Frank Purdue and Flo Mabe and I—we all had dinner that night, and they were laughing over the argument.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: Yeah. Really. Okay. Now, the big PS to this story is that every everybody knew that that Don Mabe and Frank Purdue just argued. Uh, yeah, they fought like cats and dogs, but in a way, uh, they almost fought like like two brothers. Uh-huh. And the person that Frank, when Frank decided to retire and move up to chairman of the board instead of president, the person whom he gave the job of president was Don Make.
0: Right.
1: The person who stood up to him the most mm-hmm. was the one that he entrusted with the presidency.
0: Yeah. Which is...
1: I was. Excuse me. I always so, thought that it, that it really reflected very well on on both men because it reflected well on Don Maeve that he cared enough to stand up to, to Frank. Uh-huh. I mean, been a lot easier just to say yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But, but he really cared and he was willing to stand up to him. And Frank recognized that and rewarded him.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great lesson. I think um, it's all too easy to, to surround yourself with people that are going to say yes, but actually the, the fun happens when you start surrounding yourself with people that will challenge you.
1: And that's that's how it was with Frank and Dunneve.
0: Fantastic. Um, just, just conscious of, of time, um, a <clears throat> couple of quickfire kind of um, questions um, now. Um, and it's a quickfire question. It might not be a quickfire answer, but but what one tip would you give to other family firms to help them to thrive?
1: <laughs> well I want to say buy how to make your family business last uh-huh. <laughs> but since I'm a polite person and I'm not a greedy person I will give you something more useful oh wait I can give you something really really useful uh, and it's not about buying my book it's I because I want this information to get out there uh-huh. I, I have a lot of freebies probably a third of, of my book is free on my website all you have uh-huh. to do is download, down, download it And the most valuable one at all has nothing to do with my book. But I mentioned the woman, Robin Fivish. Uh She she says that the more you know your family's stories, the higher functioning your family will be. Uh Well, she has a series of 20 questions that can sort of evaluate how well your family knows their stories. And it asks questions like, do you know how your mom and dad met? Do you know any illnesses that your mom or dad had when they were growing up? just questions like that. Uh-huh. Well, I've got the list of those 20 questions and you can get them. Uh, if you go to huh. And again, Mitzi is spelled. I don't know if anybody will remember this. Do you remember Mitzi Gaynor? Anyway, uh, I M- don't know. No, nobody will. Because <laughs> But it's M-I-T-Z-I. Uh-huh. At, oh, sorry. It's www dot mitzi purdue and purdue is spelled p-e-r-d-u-e
2: uh-huh.
1: so mitzi purdue.com uh-huh. and at, at the opening page you'll see you'll have to scroll down a little bit but you'll see a whole bunch of freebies that you get just for downloading them and and one other thing if if you buy my book on amazon it's $27.95. Uh-huh. If you buy it directly from me, uh, for our listeners, I have a discount. Okay, you fantastic. You can get it for $10 on a secret page. And you won't find this page unless you write in the following. Uh-huh. And it's Purdue, P E R D U E, dot com uh-huh. forward slash discount. Oh, and by the way, if you if you order it directly from me, I'll autograph it for you. Oh, brilliant! But possibly the easiest way is to get it on Amazon.
0: But but, but we'll um if you're happy for us to do so, we'll we'll put a link up to that page on uh, on the show notes so people can find it easily. Um, Great. Right. Okay, it,
1: it it would be a huge favor to me if you'd include both because the exactly. Mister Do slash discount that doesn't take you any place else except the discount. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I'm. I'm going to guess that a fair number of our beloved listeners would like the freebies,
2: uh-huh.
1: and those you get from MitziPurdue.com without the yep. forward slash discount. So, depending on on whether they want to buy the book or they'd like the freebies, gosh, uh-huh. oh, hard choice.
0: <laughs> I will certainly link up both. Wonderful. Um, that's fantastic, and and finally, I think we we covered um, in terms of your your own website. But but if our audience want to get in touch with you, um, are you on social media? Do you um, interact? I am on this?
1: social. I am on social media. I'm on I'm on Twitter and Facebook. But if you if you want to get in touch with me more directly, uh-huh. just, uh huh, just go to mitsyperdue and then there's a contact me. Uh-huh. And and I I answer those faithfully. I mean, like four times a day, I look at them. Yeah, because I love interaction. I mean, oh, it's it's what keeps me going. So, you know, please contact me.
0: Absolutely, and I'm I'm uh, living proof that, that that is the case because we interviewed uh, Vincent Valeri from um, who I believe has has put an article or you've written an article about him on on your site. Yes. Um, and so I had a look around your site and got in contact and within a few hours you'd come back to me and agreed to, to do this. So um, I, I, can, uh, I can confirm that you are um, very good at coming back to people on there. Mitzi, thank you very much. That's been, been fascinating. It, it, it's great to hear those stories and, and examples of, of how culture can lead to, to successful businesses. Um, so on behalf of the audience, thank you very much for your time and uh, for talking to us today.
1: It's been a sheer joy and something that your audience may not know. You are the best prepared interviewer I've had out of a (laughs) hundred.
0: That's very kind of you to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fambizpodcast.com.